Father, as we come through a springtime of uh, unexpected turmoil and, and uncertainty, Father, we thank you that we can rest on the certainty of what you've promised us in your word. For even when the world we know is long gone, you tell us that your word will remain. Because, Father, it is eternal and it is unchanging. And so it gives us confidence, Father, as we study it tonight, to look forward and to put aside our concerns of the day and to rest in the assurance that what you say will come to pass. And as we consider the things you have told us about in your word in the coming kingdom, there is nothing better to dwell on than that. Nothing more encouraging, nothing um, more exciting than to think about the life we will soon know with you. We thank you for that glory that is coming by no means of our own, but only because of what your son has done for us as we celebrated this past Easter. Thank you, Father, for this glorious preview. And as we study it, Father, with our limited understanding, I pray you'd open our eyes and our hearts to fully understand what you have given us so that it would just encourage our anticipation all the more. We pray for that tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, third night in our study of the kingdom. Now, in this study of Revelation, we've come to this point taking time to study what we can about the time of the kingdom because the Bible gives us so much to learn in that area. But ironically, it doesn't come out of the book of Revelation. You remember as we've been studying, we've been looking at the uh, events of Revelation in sections as the book itself gives it to us. And we came into chapter 20 and we found ourselves in a uh, view of the kingdom as it's mentioned in chapter 20, but only in a handful of verses in that chapter is the kingdom covered at all. And once you pass that brief mention of the kingdom in chapter 20, uh, John in, that, in the book of Revelation tells us that what comes after that is the destruction of our current planet. It will burn up, and in its place, in chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation, we're gonna learn about a new heavens and a new earth that's coming. Now that's where we're going in a a couple weeks, but before we get there, we wanna finish in our understanding of what happens in the thousand years of the kingdom. And as I said, the book of Revelation just doesn't tell us much about what's in that period of time. So what we've been doing is moving outside this book and studying Old Testament passages that do tell us quite a bit about what life in the kingdom will be like. And I've divided our study in this section of, this, of, uh, of our class into four parts. Uh, we started looking at the changes to creation and nature and uh, the borders and the government and so on. We did that in our first night of examination on the kingdom. Last week, we looked at the second part, which was daily life, as I call it, life and death, how we will experience that world. We did that last week. This week, we're gonna be studying the temple the millennial temple that will exist in that time, and along with it, how we worship, how the kingdom law works with respect to sacrifice and the like. And then we have one more week in our study of the kingdom. That comes next week, when next week we will look at the final war that ends the age. All right, today we're gonna examine the temple operation of the kingdom, including the sacrificial system and the kingdom law. Uh, Now, for those of you who are regular students of verse-by-verse ministry and you've done some of our other studies, and in particular, if you've done Ezekiel, then tonight's gonna be a bit of a review. In fact, this week and next week will be a bit of a review because most of what I'm gonna cover tonight and virtually all of what I will cover next week 
comes out of the book of Ezekiel, and that's because Ezekiel is the only prophet to tell us much about these things. So if you're gonna learn about the temple or about the war that ends the age of the kingdom, you gotta go to Ezekiel. So tonight, we're gonna start with that tour of the temple, as I said. We'll go through the temple itself. I'm gonna give you a virtual tour of what we think it will look like based on the descriptions God gives us. Then we're gonna talk about worship and sacrifice in the kingdom under the new kingdom law and what that means. Now, the only temple that you hear mentioned in the book of Revelation is the temple that's constructed during the tribulation. That's where we we find out about that in chapter 11. John tells us that he's asked to measure a tribulation temple, and Daniel 12 told us that the tribulation temple has to be cleansed from the image of the beast that has been placed there by the false prophet, and that it takes 30 days after the tribulation ends before the cleansing of that image from the temple, the removal of that image, happens. Well, the fact that Daniel is still talking about this building 30 days after Jesus returns tells us that this temple is intended to continue on into the kingdom, although when we get into the kingdom, we're not gonna be using the temple that was built during tribulation, far from it. We're gonna be using one that is far grander than that one, but it just goes to the point that there will be A temple, and Ezekiel confirms that for us. The existence of a temple in the kingdom, more than that, he gives us a tremendous amount of detail about what it's like. Over a series of nine chapters in Ezekiel, the readers of that book get a virtual tour of the building and its operation and uh, how, how we enter into it and everything. And as I said, that study exists. We've already got an Ezekiel study for you. If you're interested, go online, you can listen to it. And so in today's study, I'm gonna be using parts of that to summarize what we need to know for the sake of this study. And because there is so much in Ezekiel, I'm not going to be reading all of the passages from Ezekiel that give us what I'm showing you tonight. Uh, I trust that you can go back to the Ezekiel study on your own if you care to and get all of that background. All right, let's do a little bit though. Let's start with, and I'm gonna zip back here to where we were, Ezekiel chapter 40, Verse two is where we're going to be to open the study tonight. In chapter 40, verse two, Ezekiel, getting a vision from God, says this. In the visions of God, he brought me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain, and on it to the south there was a structure like a city. So he brought me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze with a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. The man said to me, son of man, see with your eyes and hear with your ears and give attention to all that I'm going to show you, for you have been brought here in order to show it to you. Declare to the house of Israel all that you see. Now that's where the uh, discussion of the temple begins in the book of Ezekiel. That man got the privilege of seeing and describing the millennial temple for Israel and for us. And he starts by saying it was positioned on a high mountain. Now we saw this in a previous study when we were looking at the topography, the changes in the landscape during the kingdom, and I told you that the highest mountain on the earth, according to Isaiah, will be the mountain on which the temple sits, and that's the high mountain that Ezekiel is describing here as well. And he goes on to say that on top of this mountain, he sees a structure that is so massive, he calls it a city because it looks that way to him. Now, if you look at the way Israel appears today, for example, the topography of it, uh, it's very different. I mean, it's hilly, yes, it's got valleys, but it's certainly not the kind of mountain that you would call chief of the world, and it's not as tall as 
many other mountains, even in the Middle East. So uh, it, it will change dramatically by the time we get to the kingdom period. After God has raised up this huge mountain, Ezekiel says there'll be a city on top of it. And Ezekiel is told to go measure it. Now why is he measuring this building? Because by the measurements we gain out of the book of Ezekiel, we gain an appreciation of the massive scale of this building that is going to be the temple of the millennial kingdom. And one of the important reasons why we need to know its dimensions is so that we are confident that we are looking at something we have never seen before. That would preclude us from assuming this is Ezekiel describing some prior temple. Because when you look at the dimensions, it's clear nothing like this has ever existed before. And tonight we're gonna walk through this building based on those dimensions and on some uh, artist's rendering that I have that are very useful in showing you what this building will, will be like when we actually see it in person. And it starts with gaining an appreciation of its scale. And I think the easiest way to do that is to compare this structure to other things we're already familiar with. And let's start with a simple graphic. The original temple, or rather tabernacle as it was called when Moses built it, was little more than a tent structure surrounded by a fence. So that little yellow square that you see standing next to it, that's the relative size of the entire compound that held the tabernacle, the fence and everything within it. Now, after, after a few centuries, God gave Israel the right to build a temple proper, a stone building. He gave it to Solomon to do it. When Solomon built the temple, he wanted something more ornate than the tabernacle, obviously, so he built it a little bigger. So now you see that slightly orange square. That's the footprint of Solomon's temple in the day that he built it. You can see it's a little bigger. And then later, after a lot of things came about, there was eventually a temple in Herod's day. But before you look at that, let me put something else on the screen that you're a little more familiar with. Here's something most Americans are familiar with, a football field. Now you can see how big a football field is compared to Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple is a little more than half the size of a football field. Then we get to the time of Herod. Herod built a temple that was quite impressive. Herod's temple dwarfed the prior temple of Solomon. But what about the millennial temple? How big would it be in comparison to these buildings? Well, that's how big the millennial temple will be compared to what we've seen before. Multiple football fields in size. It's a huge structure. And the reality of an operating temple with priests and guards, we're told, at the doors, and all the size of it and the number of people that will be able to flood into this space at one time, all of that is a reminder to us of how prevalent sin will be in the kingdom, not with us, of course, not with glorified human beings, but with the world that's populating around us in a natural form, in a sinful form, this is a temple for dealing with that sin. And above all, it will be a place of ruling, for Jesus will be ruling in this place. And because of his perfect rule, the effects of sin, as we said last time, will be greatly mitigated. Now, this structure is a perfect square, as you can see by my graphic. Here's a uh, dimensional drawing of the building, looking at it from the standpoint of what we're given in the book of Ezekiel, the various dimensions. Uh, there is just generally an outer wall uh, that is surrounding the whole of it. From there, you have three gates in the wall on the northeast and south sides. Then as you come in, there's a courtyard created by those walls. Following that, uh, as you go a little further, you end up looking at an uh, inner court 
made by a second wall that's inside the, the outer wall. It too has only three gates on the north, south, and east sides. Neither has a westward entrance. And then as you go in through that inner wall, uh, you find the temple proper, and we'll look at that here more in a minute. So let's start by coming through the building, walking as it is, or as it were, virtually, from the east gate, the main entrance, inward through all of these structures. And we start by looking at it from the outside. There's a man there, that's the bronze man that Ezekiel said he was uh, meeting in his vision who took him around and showed him the place. And he's got that measuring rod there in his hand because that's what Ezekiel was given to measure. And as we walk in, you'll see measurements like up against the wall there. You'll see that rod standing against the wall as a way of giving you a reference to size, to height. That's about a 10-foot wall there. So now we're gonna walk in through that wall. And uh, as we do, uh, this is a general uh, schematic for how the gate appears. Remember, gates in this time and, and in the time of ancient Israel was not a swinging gate on a wall. It was a chamber, multi-chambered room. And it's called a gate, but it's actually a big open room. And as you come into this space, this is what you're gonna be met by, a six-chambered gate. And so as we walk in, this is the front coming up the steps. This is what the room looks like from above. So you enter from the right, walk through the chamber, and exit into the courtyard on the left there. And I'm gonna turn now to the screen behind me and point out some things. In the chambers, you have these guard rooms, basically. One, two, three on each side, total of six. And you see them there in the sort of in the recesses of it. As you come out, you come out into the inner court, the, uh, what's called the outer court, which is the first area of the temple as you uh, enter in. These courtyards, or these guard rooms, by the way, are set up uh, specifically to guard uh, the entrance, which tells you something. If you, if you need guards in the millennial kingdom, there's still sin, there's still concern about what happens. By the way, the dimensions here are very important. The gate is 100 feet long, it's 50 feet wide, it's a 100 foot door, it's a 120 foot porch. Um, what I'm getting at is the numbers themselves have meaning. The dimensions of the gate all come in increments of five or six. Five is the number of grace, six is the number for sinful man. And this building is a place where sin meets grace. That's the whole point of a temple. And so the symbolic uses of six and five and other numbers in other cases are just communicating the purpose of the building. Now, as we exit this inner gate, and this is another view as, you were, as if you were walking through it, so as you exit this inner gate and you come out of it, you, you're met, this is the inside edge of that wall, and it's covered by a porch. And you notice there are palm trees that decorate right above the gate here, and Ezekiel tells us that around all of these entrances there will be palm trees marking the entrances, and if you wonder why are there palm trees there, what's the significance? Well, if you imagine this courtyard filled with millions of people, and you can see how similar the outside looks as you look around, if you didn't have those palm trees at the top, you wouldn't know where the exit was. So it's a way of marking the exits as you come in and out of the building. They're also on the inner gates in that inner wall, Going a little, let's get a little bird's eye view here. Here again, we've come in now from the bottom, from the east gate. There's those palm branches I just talked about. And then here's the first courtyard created by that outer wall, and it's quite huge. And in, is, if you keep going east, you're gonna go through a second 
gate, the inner gate, which leads into the area of the temple proper. Here again, there's only gates on the north and south and east sides on both the inner and the outer gate. No entrance from the west side. Keep moving here. As you come to the inner gate, there's more palm branches marking the gates. You also notice down here little tables. Ezekiel tells us that there are tables here for sacrifice and the priests will be doing sacrifice of animals, uh, actually slitting the throats of the animals and so on on those tables. And if you were to pass through that gate from this side and come through, now you'd find yourself in the inner court and, and in the inner court what you find prominently is the altar where the sacrifice is burned. You have steps up to the altar in the center of this courtyard and as you go a little further, you eventually, here's another scene of the, of the side of the altar. And then, of course, if you go a little further, you come up the steps into the temple proper. And looking in from the, out, from the inside of the temple, now that's the outside, and then you've walked through the threshold of the temple. The first temple, if you remember, had these, uh, this is the tabernacle from the desert time of Moses, the, the beginning of this place had uh, a veil, a curtain. So in the case of the millennial temple, no door, no curtain, according to Ezekiel. But in Moses' time, you couldn't see into the building. You had to go through a curtain. And if you looked inside what was built for Moses' time, if you notice, there was another veil that separated one-third of the space from the other two-thirds. This was the holiest place and the smaller section was called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place, and in it were various pieces of furniture as specified in the law. If we go look now at the Millennial Temple, this is the two-thirds space, the larger space called the Holy Place, no furniture. In fact, the only furniture is this little table, which is hard to see here, but it's the table of incense. It's where they burned incense, and it's the only piece of furniture in the Millennial Temple. In fact, if you go from this room now into the smaller section, the Holy of Holies, it's a completely empty room, according to Ezekiel. There's no furniture in that space. So all of the furniture that was originally in the tabernacle had some significance in picturing Christ and his redemptive work. But now that we have Christ present on the earth, there's no need for a picture of Christ. He's there. So instead of pictures of Christ, the only implement, the only furniture that remains is the one that pictures prayer before the Father, that is Christ interceding before the Father who is still in heaven, and as such, it is still an appropriate piece of furniture to have, because it does represent something that is still happening in that day, which is, of course, intercession. All right, moving on a few more. This is an overview of the temple structure we just walked into, so here's the entrance. Here's the Holy of Holies and the holy place. And if you notice around it are other structures. There's two buildings on either side that flank it, and there's another building called the West Building behind it. Now, these two that flank are the priests' quarters. These are where the priests uh, will enter every day and change into their priestly garb, and then they can come out from there directly into the area where they perform the sacrificial service. In effect, these are the priests' locker rooms because they're told that they have to change out of their priestly garb when they finish duty for the day before they're allowed to exit and go back out into the general population. And then the building that's behind the temple, we're not quite sure what that is. It's not described in Ezekiel. It's just we know that by dimensions given that it exists there. 
Finally, here's an overview of those buildings sort of filled in. You can see them named for you there. The temple itself, the priestly chambers on either side, and this mysterious west building behind it. If you looked at the priestly chambers up close, this is how they're described. They're a multi-tiered structure with galleries for priests, I guess, to observe what's going on. And they have entrances and exits through these hallways that lead them in and out of their chambers. All right, we'll come back to that. If you look more closely at the temple, Ezekiel also says there is a river that emerges out from underneath the foundations of the temple. You see it represented there with that thin blue line that comes out next to the stairs. That river then runs in a channel in the courtyard, we're told, uh, under the gates of the temple. So it, it proceeds out from the temple underneath the uh, inner gate and through the outer courtyard and then underneath the outer gate, eventually emerging outside the temple altogether right next to the east gate. And then it splits as it comes out to the left of the gate there and it splits, we're told, and begins to run both to the west side that is out toward the Mediterranean Sea and then also eastward into the Dead Sea. We studied this a little bit later. As it moves, it gets bigger. There's a point in time at which Ezekiel follows it, as he's told, and it becomes bigger and bigger to the point where he's wading into it up to his neck and he has to get out, otherwise he can't swim in it. So as that water continues to flow, it continues to magnify, and eventually, as we said last week, when it comes out of the temple and off the mountain, it's flowing in two directions. When it hits the Dead Sea, it makes it fresh. So that's a quick run-through of the temple building itself. I told you the temple will be the center of worship in the kingdom, and that worship involves Jesus in the building, sacrifice taking place outside the building, priests serving, and even feast days that happen at various points during the year. I wanna get through some of those tonight. Let's begin by discussing Christ's place in the temple, and it begins with his place in earlier temples. Remember, anytime there is a physical manifestation of God into his creation in any form, it is always the second person of the Godhead manifesting himself. Paul tells us in Colossians 1, he is the visible form of the invisible God. So any manifestation of God is the second person of the Godhead, which is why in the Old Testament, when you see a manifestation of God, we call it the angel of the Lord or the Shekinah glory of God, and those terms are always references to the pre-incarnate Christ. So in the original tabernacle that Moses built, there is a time in which we're told that in that tabernacle, the glory of God would appear above the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, in that smaller chambered space within the tabernacle. That glowing glory of God was Christ pre-incarnate occupying, dwelling with his people in the tabernacle. Later, when Solomon built that more majestic temple, well, there's a moment when we're hearing of the building of that uh, structure when Solomon is praying and dedicating it and God appears again in the form of the Shekinah glory and once again occupies that same place, only now, of course, it's even more majestic and the glory of God fills that house, we're told. That went on for centuries until there came a time when the Lord eventually departed his temple. It happened in Ezekiel's day. In fact, Ezekiel is the one to describe it. It came as a result of Israel's sin and God's desire to judge them for it, and God told Israel he would be sending Nebuchadnezzar and the army of Babylon 
down into Jerusalem to conquer the city, to destroy the temple, and to exile his people. Now, of course, God wasn't gonna remain in his temple and allow Nebuchadnezzar's army to come into that place while he was present. So shortly before Nebuchadnezzar arrived with his army, God departed from the temple. He made his glory leave the temple and depart. And he did it in a very particular way. He started by moving out of the Holy of Holies and proceeding through the building, we're told by Ezekiel, and resting on the threshold, on the doorway to the temple. And he paused there for a time. Ezekiel says this in chapter 10, verse four. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple, and the temple was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. So he moves first to that point, and then secondly, after having paused there, he moves to the east gate of the temple structure. Remember, the temple that we're looking at now is similar, at least in relative terms, to the one that Solomon built. That is, there's an east gate that directly is opposite the doorway to the temple. So the Shekinah glory of God moved out of the Holy of Holies to the threshold, then out of the threshold proceeding east to the gate for the temple. Ezekiel tells us this in chapter 10, verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. When the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with their wheels beside them. And then they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of God of Israel hovered over them. So that was the next stage of God's movement. Finally, we're told that the glory of the Lord moves outside the temple, across the Kidron Valley, and up to the top of the Mount of Olives. You notice in this uh, rendering of today of modern Israel, you can see that's a directly eastward movement. So he's continued going east up to the Mount of Olives, and then we're told he gets to the top of this peak, to the Mount of Olives, and pauses once more. Remember, all of this is happening back in the time of Ezekiel in roughly uh, 600 B.C., And Ezekiel says this in chapter 11, verse 23. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God to the exiles in Chaldea, so the vision that I had seen left me. So that's the end of the story of of the movement of God. After he's last seen hovering, as it were, on the top of the Mount of Olives, then the glory of the Lord disappears. It has never returned to the temple in any of its forms since that day. That was the last time God inhabited a temple on earth. Now, we also know the Lord physically walked into the temple when he was in the form of man, Jesus, of course, but he didn't occupy the Holy of Holies. He didn't set up his residence there. That has yet to be uh, returned for Israel. So God left heading east up to the Mount of Olives. Now, what's interesting about that is that in the book of Acts, after Jesus departs the earth, he departs from the same place. And as he's leaving, if you remember in the book of Acts, chapter one, as the disciples watch him disappear, the angels that are there say, he will return as you see him leaving. That is, he will come back to the Mount of Olives. And that's what we studied right before we got to this section of our study. At the end of chapter 19, we saw how Jesus comes back to the Mount of Olives, splits the Mount of Olives to free the people that are in the city, and you know the story. So Jesus comes back the way he left, and then he will enter the temple again in the way that he left. So he left the temple in Ezekiel's day by the 
glory of God going eastward. He came back in the form of a, of a man riding into the east gate on a donkey when he came back to the temple again. And then when he left again, he went right back up with his disciples to the top of the Mount of Olives and then he ascended. And when he comes back at the end of tribulation, he comes back to the Mount of Olives and walks back in the east side of the city. And now to finish that pattern, we're gonna see how he comes back to dwell in the temple yet again, coming from the east. And that's in Ezekiel chapter 43. Let's just start there. Ezekiel 43, one. This now is describing the scene at the outset of the kingdom. This is one of the first events that begins the thousand year reign of the kingdom. Jesus coming in triumphantly and gloriously to occupy the millennial temple. Chapter 43, verse one, Ezekiel says, then he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory, and it was like the appearance of the vision which I had saw, the, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kebar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord, notice, the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. And the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. Now remember, that's the one inside the second wall. He brought me into the inner court and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. Then I heard someone speaking to me from the house. Now this is a voice coming out of the temple. While a man was standing beside me and the voice coming out of the house said, son of man, this is the place of my throne, the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their harlotry and by their corpses of the kings when they die, by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost beside my doorpost with only the wall between me and them. And they've defiled my holy name by their abominations which they've committed, so I've consumed them in my anger. Now let them put their harlotry and the corpses of their kings far from me and I will dwell among them forever. So, the Lord lives in the kingdom in that day in the form of his Shekinah glory. Let's, let's go through that same process that Ezekiel just went through. Let's go see it the way he would have seen it. It's a, a little cheesy, but you know, you didn't pay much for this class, so you kind of get what you pay for. Here's, here's what it would look like. The glory of the Lord coming in from the east gate, that's the gate, crossing the outer temple courtyard into the inner gate, and then proceeding up the stairs through the inner gate, and it's at that point that the man that was with Ezekiel said, come into the inner court with me, so then he could see him from the inner court coming up, passing over the altar, into the, over the threshold, into the house of the Lord, proceeding into the holy place, through the holy place, and then ultimately into the holy of holies, and as he does that, he fills the temple with his glory, we're told, and that is how he now will stay. He lives there continually. So forevermore, throughout the thousand years, as you uh, were to come to the temple, with no door there and no uh, curtains, etc., if you position yourself in just the right way, looking into the temple from the east toward the west, you'll see the glory of God in the temple, resident in the temple. In fact, he is so much permanently there that Ezekiel goes on to tell us that once he has made the journey that we just watched, that door, that east gate, the outer east gate that he started in, it will be shut forever and it will never open again for the entire length of the thousand year kingdom. This is what we read in Ezekiel 44, verse one. Then he brought me back by way of the outer gate of the sanctuary 
which faces the east, and it was shut. The Lord said to me, this gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it, for the Lord God of Israel has entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. So, literally, the Lord is the only one in all of the time of the kingdom who will ever have the privilege of going through the outer east gate of the temple. No one will take the same journey that the Lord took, which is clearly symbolizing his unique work of atonement, that his entry into the temple in this fashion is a symbolic representation of Christ entering by means of his blood to be our high priest, interceding for sin, entering once for all, and that's symbolized by his entry into the temple through this east gate that no one ever will be able to do as well or or repeat again. And that's why we said earlier in this study that as we get into the kingdom, and as you might imagine your own experiences there and perhaps hope to see Jesus and have a conversation with him, you need to understand you're not gonna be sitting down for coffee with Jesus in the kingdom. Uh, The creator God is going to uh, rule over his creation and dwell among his people in glory in a fashion that does not condescend to human activity in the way that we might have expected. That time has come and gone. He did that in his first coming His second coming is for something different. He never leaves the temple again. And think about it theologically for a moment. If he thinks so highly of his entry that he has a door shut permanently to make the point that he has to enter only by once, does Christ need to enter to be our uh, appeasement, to be our substitutionary atonement? By once for all he entered. If that's so serious that he has a door shut, then it tells you that he's not gonna be coming and going all the time. He's not gonna come in and go and have appointments and you know, go out for errands because any re-entry, any leaving and coming back muddies the waters here. It confuses the theological picture. It suggests that there's more than one uh, entering in for our sake, and there isn't. So the gate is permanently closed and there is no time, any time, that Jesus leaves that place during the thousand years. Now, there's an interesting little uh, corollary or consequence of the gate being shut. Now you have this multi-chambered room with no traffic possible, so it becomes great office space. And we're told in Ezekiel that since the east gate is permanently closed, David, the prince, if you remember, as he's called in, in scripture, the one who will rule over Israel under the authority of Christ, This becomes his office. Ezekiel tells us that he sets up office there every day. He goes in every day and he conducts whatever business God has for him and then he goes away at the end of the day. This is his his office Uh, and just like anyone else going to the office, of course he brings his lunch and this is the place that he hangs out. So if you wanna see David, this is where you go to find him. All right, now the only time that believers and glorified saints will see Jesus in the temple is when we go there to worship. And Ezekiel tells us that this can happen on a few times. And the times that we can go into the temple and see Jesus are feast days, Sabbath days, and new moon festivals or new moon celebrations. Now, let's talk about the feasts first. There are only two feasts in the kingdom, the feast of Passover and the feast of booths, according to what's written in Ezekiel. Now, if you kind of compare that to what we know Israel received in the first time through the law of Moses, their calendar uh, months, they, they mapped our months a little differently because they have a calendar based on lunar time, ours is based on solar time, but under the law of Moses, there were seven feasts, and those seven feasts were grouped into three in the spring, three in the fall, 
and then one that came sort of in the middle. And all of those feasts have prophetic pictures of Jesus in them. The first three feasts represent aspects of Jesus' first coming. The last three all have pictures of his second coming. And the one that sits right between them, well, that represents the church period, the church that exists between the two appearances of Jesus. But as I said, in Ezekiel, we're told there are only two of these that survive for the purpose of the kingdom, the first one and the last one, the Passover and the one for the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And the Feast of Passover, of course, represents Jesus' redemption through his sacrifice on the cross. The Feast of Tabernacles represents Jesus dwelling among people in booths, that is, in tents, dwelling among those who are his people. And as it turns out, those are the only two of the seven that still have present-day spiritual significance in the temple, period, in the time of the kingdom. The other five have been fulfilled and no longer have significance in the time of the kingdom. For example, there's no church anymore, so we don't need a Pentecost feast anymore, and so on. All right, so moving on. Those are the two times a year you'll be able to go to the temple and celebrate a feast. In addition to the feast days, you can go to the temple on a Sabbath. There is a Sabbath day again. And there are also new moon days. In Ezekiel chapter 46, verse three, it says, the people of the land shall also worship at the doorway of that gate before the Lord on the Sabbaths and on the new moons. And then it goes on, but when the people of the land come before the Lord at the appointed feasts, he who enters by way of the north gate to worship shall go out by way of the south gate. And he who enters by way of the south gate shall go out by way of the north gate. No one shall return by the way of the gate by which he entered, but shall go straight out. Isn't that an interesting little requirement? Let me explain what's going on here. Whenever we go into the temple, we can only come in by either the north or the south gate because there's only three to begin with and one of them, the east gate, has been permanently closed. So by necessity, you're down to two. North or south, pick one. But whichever one you go in, let's say, for example, in this case, you come in by the north gate. As you come in, if you're gonna leave, you gotta leave by the south gate, the Lord said. You cannot go back out by the way you came in. So after you're done, you go out the other side and you're done. Now, why is that a requirement? Well, as you go through this courtyard in that one-way direction, you are forced to pass by the entrance that looks directly into the Holy of Holies. And it will be your opportunity as you peer through that inner east gate and in the distance up the stairs into the heart of the temple. For a brief moment, you'll get a glimpse of the glory of God. You notice in this drawing, for example, the artist has projected the light of the temple out into the courtyard. And so as you walk by it, you have a brief moment at which to spy, to see the glory of God. That will be the only time that you can see it. And I should add, by the way, the scripture says that nothing unholy can have access to the temple during this time, which he says in Ezekiel 44.8. And you have not, speaking of the priesthood, he says, you have not, kept my char- have not kept charge of my holy things yourselves, but you have set foreigners to keep charge of my sanctuary. Thus says the Lord, no foreigner uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh of all the foreigners who are among the sons of Israel shall enter my sanctuary. So the Lord says to his priesthood, there was a day in this age when you were not taking care of my temple. You let foreigners come into my temple. Therefore, because of that offense, when we get to the kingdom, I'm going to have a hard and fast rule. No one who is uncircumcised in heart or in flesh can come into my temple. And of course, to be uncircumcised in heart 
is the Bible's way of saying unbeliever. So unbelievers will never enter the temple. So think about this. Unbelievers will never see the glory of God. Back to what we talked about last week. This is why unbelief is possible because they'll see the outside of a building on the top of a high mountain, but what goes on inside will be a complete mystery to them. There'll never be a time they can make that trek from the north gate to the south gate or vice versa and spy through the wall and see the glory of God. Unbelievers will be required, though, to come up to the temple and make sacrifices in the outer court with the help of the temple priests. And so that leads us now to the conversation of the priesthood. The role of a priest, fundamentally, is to be an intercessor for people, a mediator, one who brings God to the people and the people to God. And in the days before Jesus came, under the law of Moses, God only allowed certain people, certain men, to be the intercessors between him and the people of Israel. They were the Levitical priests. And Levitical priests served by ministering in the temple, according to that law. Uh, But even then, even when we had Levitical priests, Jesus was the true high priest in heaven, interceding on behalf of God's children. And then we move forward in time from there. Then Jesus came, and the church was started, And now the Bible tells us that everyone who believes and is part of the church for the time that we're now in, everyone is a priest. Uh, Peter, for example, calls us a royal priesthood in 1 Peter 2.9. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. So as a believer in Jesus Christ, now in the time of the church, we are all priests. But remember the meaning of the word again. It means we are all intercessors. That is, we bring God to the world of unbelievers and uh, we do that by shining the light of Christ in our everyday witness, our everyday testimony, and we bring people to God through our preaching of the gospel, through our efforts to share the good news. So we're doing, in effect, what was always the case with priests, linking God and the people who need him. We're now serving in that role. Nevertheless, as it was then, it is still now the case that Jesus is the high priest. He is the one who reconciles everyone back to God. So we have a similar situation from both the time of the law to the time of the church. We've just seen some things change in the way God is working, but you still have priests, you still have law, that is you have the law of Moses, now the law of Christ written on our hearts. You still have intercession, and you still have a high priest. Now in the kingdom, we return to a time in which only some people will be designated as priests. Not everyone will be a priest in the kingdom like it is today, but instead it will be back to something more like what was true in the time of the law of Moses. Only some will be priests, but there is a change in this case because in the kingdom period, Levites will not be priests. Ezekiel says this in chapter 44, verse 10. But the Levites who went far from me when Israel was astray, who went astray from me after their idols, shall bear the punishment for their iniquity, and they shall not come near to me to serve as a priest to me, nor come near to any of my holy things, to the things that are most holy, but they will bear their shame and the abominations which they've committed. Yet I will appoint them to keep charge of the house, of all its service, and of all that shall be done in it. So God says that because of the historical unfaithfulness of the Levites to God, this is back in the time right before Ezekiel Uh, saw the temple destroyed, Uh, the nation had gone into deep idolatry and the priesthood was actually facilitating that rather than standing against it. And God said because of that offense, 
when they get to the kingdom, they're gonna have a more limited role than they used to enjoy. He says in verse 13 up there that they shall not come near him or his holy items, the holy things in the temple. Uh, Very different than, of course, what you see in the Mosaic Law. They're the only ones who can go near them in the Mosaic Law. Instead, he says that they are going to minister effectively as the keepers of the temple, uh, the custodians of the temple, uh, but not as priests. Instead, only one family within the line of Levites is going to have that privilege in the temple period. It's the family of Zadok. Ezekiel says, but the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the sons of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary. They shall come near to my table to minister to me and keep my charge. Now, you may not remember the story of Zadok, but this man came to uh, prominence in the story of David. When David was supposed to get the throne, but the house of Saul was contending with him, Absalom was fighting with David over whether he could have the throne or not, Uh, there was a a point in that rebellion where you had to choose sides. Who were you for, David or Saul? And David or Absalom? And Zadok was the high priest at the time. And when David was being forced to flee the city of Jerusalem by his adversaries, Zadok took the Ark of the Covenant out of the temple and followed David as David was fleeing from Jerusalem to show his loyalty to David as king. And David told Zadok, no, go back, take it back to where it belongs, but I recognize your faithfulness to me. And God says because of Zadok's faithfulness, that in turn will allow his sons to serve in the temple. By the way, as a little point in passing, this is an excellent example of what we should all understand about how God views faithfulness now. It didn't change who was there, it just changes what you do when you get there. So faithfulness to God now is a measuring stick by how God will assign opportunity to serve in the kingdom. Now, remember from Isaiah last week though, Isaiah told us that in addition to all of these Jews that we're talking about, the priests of Zadok and Levites and so on, he said that Gentiles will also be recruited as priests in the temple. We studied that last week. So what we're learning is in addition to the priests of Zadok, there will be some Gentiles from among the nations of the earth who are given the privilege to serve as priests as well. Perhaps some of us will be in that role. Now, In the way that the priests operate, there is some other differences, we're told. They will not do some of the uh, sacrificial work they used to do. In the law of Moses, it was the priests, rather it was the worshipers, who had to sacrifice the animal. The priests were there to officiate, and they took the sacrificial pieces up to the altar and did the rest of the work. But the actual killing of the animal had to be done by the worshiper. The dad who brought the lamb up had to slit the throat. Now, in the time of the kingdom, Ezekiel tells us that the priests will take on that duty, and it'll be the Levites, the ones who are unfaithful, who get that job. They have the dirty work of killing the animals and all of that, preparing the slaughter, and then the priests of Zadok take it the rest of the way through the process of worship. By the way, I got a few pictures of that just for those who might be interested. Uh, If you notice, over here in the corners that are created by the intersection of the priest chambers and this mysterious building, there are these little barbecues, for lack of a better term. And if you zoom in on one of those corners, these are the places that Ezekiel tells us that the slaughter will take place, the animals will be killed, and there will be burning pits here for the animal sacrifices since the altar is not big enough to handle the volume of people that will be coming in here. And they're not just here up by the corners of the temple, they're also positioned, if you can kind of see down here, by the entrance side of the building, 
there's more of these pits in the corners. So this will be the way people are called to sacrifice during the temple. Now, that raises the last question for the night, one that I'm sure most of us have been thinking about through all of this. We have these burning pits for sacrifice. We have priests for sacrifice. Well, wait a minute, Steve. If Christ is our high priest, why was any of this even necessary? Why are there priests? Why is there sacrifice? Jesus was the once for all sacrifice, right? And over the centuries, theologians, when they get to the book of Ezekiel and the concept of a temple kingdom, uh, temple, they've been troubled at this prospect of a return of a sacrificial system. Because if you remember from the letter of Hebrews, we're told definitively in chapter 10 that by this we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering... He is perfected for all time, those who are sanctified. That's basic New Testament theology that the substitutionary atonement of Jesus on the cross satisfied, appeased the wrath of God, and as such, there is no sacrifice required evermore. And that's not just for one person or one period of history, it's for all time. And so it begs the question, why does God reinstitute a temple and a sacrificial system? Well, to answer why there's a temple in the kingdom, you first have to understand why was there a temple in the first place? Why has there ever been a temple with sacrifices? And the story to answer that question starts with the story of sin and how that changed the human condition. And this will be a brief run through and probably a lot for some of us who haven't studied this in depth, but that's why we record this so you can watch it again later. So let's do this. Chapter three of Genesis We read this in verse seven. After Adam and woman ate of the fruit that they were forbidden from eating, we're told this. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now, Adam and woman were alone on the earth. They were enjoying the garden. They were without sin and they were without need for clothing because they had no conscious uh, awareness of any problem of any sin. In other words, they were fully transparent and fully innocent. Then they disobeyed the word of God, and instantly sin entered into their nature, into their very being. And at that point, even though they were married, even though they were completely at peace with one another, that is, they hadn't had an argument, there was nothing wrong between them, and even though they're the only two people on earth, suddenly they need clothes. Isn't that interesting? They seek to cover themselves physically. You could beg the, ask the question, who are they hiding from? Who's gonna see them? Who else except them could see them? And the fact that they each saw each other a moment earlier and it didn't bother them, why are they suddenly now bothered by each other seeing them without clothes on? Well, the point of this discussion in Genesis 3, 7 is to make clear to us that the arrival of sin resulted in an immediate impediment to their fellowship to the fellowship between the two of them. It, sin fundamentally changed that couple's relationship uh, in that moment. Where before they were in perfect fellowship with one another, now they're uncomfortable, now they're self-protective. Uh, that sin nature that is corrupting them now instantly made these two people adversaries of one another. And now they have reason to hide from one another. No longer could they be fully known, no longer could they fully know one another. Sin has darkened 
that previously innocent, transparent nature, so now they're harboring secret thoughts. Now they have sinful desires. Now they have secret sins that are going to emerge. And because their own shameful understanding of that inside them has now been turned on, they are projecting that onto each other. They know that the other has the same thoughts going on and that lack of trust now is permeating their relationship. They're weighed down by guilt and they're worried about each other's sin affecting them as well. None of this is conscious necessarily in the moment, it's instinctive. And so instinctively they try to seek for a way to regain that level of comfort that they once knew with one another but the best they could manage was a fig leaf. And it did a very little bit of comforting, but it was better than nothing. But as serious as the physical effects of sin may be, the spiritual effect of their sin was far greater, as you know. And that's the next verse. Chapter three, verse eight says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now this is a different issue. Spiritually now, the couple realizes that they are accountable before God for their sin and they now have another instinctive reaction. This time though, the instinctive reaction is not to put a fig leaf on. You notice the fig leaf is already on their body but it's not enough for God. They have to hide from God. They no longer even feel comfortable in his presence. His very approach is threatening because instinctively they understand sin demands the wrath of God. The spirit that was within them sensed their vulnerability. And so they have now lost an opportunity with, for fellowship with God. The intimacy they once enjoyed with God, now that has been ruined as well. And so for that reason, God could no longer dwell among men without shielding men from his glory, from his presence. So what are we learning? Sin had two, not one, but two fundamental effects on the human condition reflected in the respective behaviors of Adam and woman in the garden. First, sin ruined our relationship with other human beings by corrupting our nature in such a way that we become enemies of one another. Even among those that we are most friendly with, even among those we marry, we will do hurtful, harmful things, we have selfish intentions, we can't know them as well as we wish, and we certainly don't want them to know us as well as they might. It is this lack of transparency and this adversarial component now to human relationships that has come out of a sin nature. Sin ruined the the physical nature between humanity and secondly, sin ruined our relationship with God by incurring his judgment and making us deserving of his wrath. So you can put it simply, sin separates us from other human beings and spiritually sin separates us from God. One is a physical issue and one is a spiritual issue. And in response, God offered us provisions to cover both sides of this problem in the moment with Adam and woman. First, he corrected for the spiritual separation from him by offering a spiritual covering, which you only gain by faith. He said this in response to Adam and woman, preaching effectively the first gospel message. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. You may be familiar with this passage. Theologians have coined the term proto-evangelium to simply call it the first gospel because the Lord is promising here through this somewhat uh, obscure language to send a seed that is a person 
who would defeat the enemy and reconcile humanity to God. And we know that seed is Christ. He would be the one through his death who would reconcile us to God. Now, this provision is spiritual. What does that mean? Well, in this moment, nothing happened. That is, Jesus didn't appear, the cross didn't suddenly get set up next to them, and the death happened in the moment. What was going on in this moment was a promise. God made a promise to do this at some future point. What was necessary then for Adam and woman to gain the benefit of it was to put their faith in that promise, to believe it even though it hadn't happened yet. But if they did that, by their faith in the promise, they were credited with Christ's righteousness. And in that way, Adam and woman's relationship was restored with God by their faith in that promised spiritual covering whenever it came. And all saints, whether we're talking Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, even into the kingdom saints, all saints gain spiritual covering in the same way, by putting their faith in the promised solution to our separation from God, into the promise of a Messiah. But that's not the only thing God did to solve their problem. Next, the Lord made a provision to correct for the physical separation that had robbed Adam and woman of that personal intimacy and trust. Verse 21, the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Now, in verse 21, the Lord kills an animal, self-evidently, to get a skin, probably a lamb, uses the skin then to clothe Adam and woman. That sacrifice, notice, was a physical sacrifice. An animal physically was killed. It's not a spiritual sacrifice. That is, it's not a promise of some future thing God will do. It was a physical thing that happened right then and there in front of their eyes, and it came in addition to the spiritual provision that had already been made. Now, without this physical sacrifice, Adam and woman woman would have been left to feel the shame of their nakedness. They still would have been prancing around feeling uncomfortable. Their physical discomfort reflected that inward mistrust of each other. But once they had clothes on, something about the psychology of that gave them a sense of restoration and comfort again. Moreover, the fact that God did it for them gave them edification, gave them confidence to know God was pleased with this solution. It satisfied God as well because he instituted it. So the practice of making a physical sacrifice became an object lesson to humanity about the meaning of that spiritual sacrifice that they're still waiting on. It gave substance to the earlier promise, which had no substance, at least nothing you could see. But it goes beyond that. It's not merely about a lesson or a picture. It's also about restoring human relationships through an additional physical act of sacrifice. And it happens in this way. First, God officiates over physical sacrifices. He has to be present. You notice he's present here in the garden when this animal is sacrificed. He presides over the ritual. Now, think of it this way. Had Adam and woman gotten around to the idea of putting clothes on at some point and decided on their own to go kill an animal and to make clothes out of its hide, it would have just been called a hunt. It wouldn't have been a sacrifice. What made this a qualified physical sacrifice was that the Lord presided in it and was satisfied by it. And, it, and the fact that that sacrifice was acceptable to God made it useful to cleansing their conscience, giving them a sense of peace, giving them a sense that they have been restored to some degree. Now, keep in mind, we're not talking about salvation kinds of clearing of conscience. We're talking about something in the physical realm only. And it's also important to note the order of these events. First came spiritual covering of faith. Then can come fellowship restoration through physical sacrifice. 
First, we reconcile with God by faith in his son. Then we perform physical sacrifices made in the presence of God and authorized, if you, as it were, by God in order to reconcile with one another. And by the way, this pattern is everywhere in the Bible. Think about some examples. Noah. Noah believed God in Genesis 6 and it was con- he was considered uh, uh, to have received God's favor in chapter 6, believing in chapter 6. And yet he gets off the boat and he performs animal sacrifices at altars and he does so in order to maintain fellowship with God's people. Likewise, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're all called righteous by faith and yet they also sacrificed animals on altars. And by the way, God attended at all of those moments. Think about the times in which you see the patriarchs sacrificing animals at altars. They always built the altar wherever they have seen the presence of the Lord appear, the angel of the Lord. So in the presence of God, they know, ah, he's here. Now I can make a physical sacrifice because it will have merit. It will be acceptable to God. I can't just do it on my own. I can't pick my own time and place. God has to be present. All right, let's jump forward to our day, the church. Are we the exception to this rule? Far from it. The church today has both of these sacrifices still happening today. Obviously, the first is easy. We, too, are reconciled to God spiritually by faith in a promised Messiah. It's just that in our day, that promise has already been met. Jesus has already come, and so we believe in his death on the cross. But we, too, need a physical sacrifice for physical covering. We have sinned, just like Adam and woman did, and we therefore suffer from the same physical separation in our relationships here because of that sin. And therefore, we too need a physical system of sacrifice that has as its purpose clearing our conscience with God and reconciling us with one another. Now, our system of physical sacrifice has all the same parts that the prior one does. They just look a little different. It um, starts by understanding where God's presence is. Remember, if you don't do the physical sacrifice in the presence of God, it is not acceptable to God. In Genesis 3, when God met man and woman in the garden, he was physically present during that sacrifice. When the patriarchs met God in the form of the angel of the Lord, he was present for their sacrifices. Obviously, in the time of the law of Moses, when God codified all of this in the law, he put himself in their presence by dwelling in the Holy of Holies. And the sacrifices that took place in the tabernacle and later in the temple were being made in his presence. What about today? Well, today, the presence of the Lord is not located in a certain building because the Bible says the Spirit of God is inside every believer. So we need both a spiritual covering, which we gain by faith in God, and we also need a physical covering in order to restore relationship, and our physical covering has to come in the same fashion as it did in the times before, starting with, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? So if your body is the temple and the Spirit resides within it, then your physical sacrifice needs to be made where? In your body. That is, as Paul describes it in Romans chapter 12. He says in verse one, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. And notice, this is your spiritual service of worship. You have to worship through sacrifice. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. So, 
in this particular period of God's working on earth, we present our bodies as the living sacrifice to God, and in his presence, we do this as a service of worship. So the Israelites went before his presence in the tabernacle or the temple, and in our day, God is living in us, so it's within our bodies to make this change. Now, by the way, there's an interesting little point that comes out of this that's worth mentioning. Do you realize that when it came time to the church to exist and God wanted a place to dwell and he wanted us to make physical sacrifices in that place, if he had chosen to set up another temple in a Gentile nation somewhere so that we would have that opportunity, he would have had to have picked one Gentile nation above another and it would have sent the wrong message that he favored one Gentile nation above another, which he doesn't. And he certainly couldn't put it in Israel because during the time of the church, Israel has been hardened and set outside their land. So he had no choice but to pick an entirely new way to dwell, and he chose to dwell within every believer's body so that he would be in every Gentile nation equally, and all Gentiles have equal access to him in that respect. It's a beautiful solution. And that's why we make our sacrifices in our body. What does that mean specifically? Well, you make an act of sacrifice, of worship to God, in the way that you sacrifice your pride and your self-interest in order to show love for others, self-sacrificially. That's why you're called a priest in the New Testament, because you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you, therefore you are qualified to make sacrifices in that temple, and your physical sacrifices are how you worship God. They are not contrary to your spiritual dependence on Christ, they are in addition to your spiritual dependence on Christ. They are a way in which you model Christ's own ministry in which Christ himself did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, as Paul says in Philippians. So consider how the dwelling place of God has driven this change, and we'll finish now with how it changes the kingdom. When God dwelled in a building, people had to do their physical sacrifice there. The effect of that physical sacrifice was it cleansed their guilty conscience, they knew God approved of their heart of worship, and it restored them to others in that same group, in the body of Israel or in the body of Christ. It gave us opportunity to restore fellowship because of the cleared conscience and the sacrifice that came with it. And then we move to the church. Now the church doesn't have a building, everybody is the building. So we make those sacrifices not through cutting up of animals, but by the crucifying of our own flesh. But it has the same effect cleanses our conscience when we do good works. It it causes us to be reconciled with our brothers and sisters whom we may have hurt. It causes us to become more Christ-like in our sanctified walk. Those things are to the benefit of our relationships here on earth. And now in the kingdom, where does God dwell? If you know where he dwells, then you know what kind of sacrifices are required. Once again, God dwells in a building not in human bodies. Israel is again the chief nation on the earth because Israel is again the chief nation on the earth. Well, then again, God goes back to dwelling with them because that's his promise. And he puts a building up and he gets back in the building as we just saw. So we have God dwelling in Shekinah glory in the building and we have a worshiper in the time of the temple. And the worshiper wants to be reconciled to God spiritually and as always, it's done through faith in Jesus Christ. But now God also demands a physical sacrifice to reconcile this individual with others uh, on earth, with other humanity. Now in the time of a physical temple, you're going to have a physical sacrifice before God in his presence. And in the time when there is no temple, like there is no temple now, that is no physical temple, it's done through the good works of the believer. That is, our body is the physical temple. 
Now, I told you at the outset this is a fast run-through as it was. We still went over time a little, but I hope that helps you understand that there is nothing uh, undermining of your faith in the fact that a temple reemerges any more than there is that there was once a temple before. It simply reflects the reality that until all sin is done away with, there is both the need to be reconciled to God and to have a daily opportunity to be reconciled with one another. And these two forms of sacrifice serve that purpose. One final note, all of what I just described is for those who have sin. Those of us who live in the kingdom, who have no sin, do not participate in the sacrificial system because we have no need. Our sin has been removed from us and so as a result, we are entirely the overseers of this stuff. We are not those who come to the temple and sacrifice. It'll be for the natural born of the day who have sin and are there either believer or unbeliever who have to come before uh, the temple and do what God requires. Only the believers will be able to come in to that place where they can see inward and know that God is present. The unbelievers will stay somewhere outside the temple and bring their gifts there. All right, if you're interested in more of that, go back to the Ezekiel study. Meanwhile, we are ending there tonight. Next week when we come back, it is the war that ends the age. We'll get back into chapter 20 and see how the judgment ends the time of this earth and then gets us ready to go into the new heavens and new earth in two weeks. I hope you join us for all of this. Don't miss any of it. Let's pray. If you have questions, if you haven't already, now's a good time. Text them to us at the number that's on the screen. And then as we finish up the prayer, Mike, Pastor Mike, who's here with me tonight, will feed me those questions and I'll do my best to answer them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Father, your word is uh, more than we can appreciate, even with all the time we might give it, Father, it is deeper than our understanding. I know tonight, Father, with so much to be covered in such a short time, it may have left some behind. I pray, Father, that in your power, beyond anything I have, you could bring them with you to wherever it is you want them to be in their understanding and their appreciation of these things. I know, Father, when we get there, then we'll fully understand it. Help us to know as much as you desire that we would now, not for pride's sake, but to encourage our hearts so that we can face the days we live in now with eyes for eternity. I thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen.